Welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. This episode is sponsored by our partners at CleverTap Gaming. CleverTap Gaming is the all-in-one platform that enables game studios and publishers to create personalized player experiences. It's the only solution that provides a real-time understanding of player actions and integrates lifecycle marketing, live ops, and remote configuration into a holistic experience. In other words, you can maximize engagement, retention, and monetization through real-time segmentation and targeted offers, and you can run live ops campaigns with A-B testing, push notifications, in-app messaging, and much more. To discover how CleverTap Gaming can best serve your games team, simply visit clevertap.com gaming or check out the details in the show notes. And with that, let's jump into the episode. What's up, everybody, and welcome to the Novic Gaming Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Takei, and this is the interview and insight segment. And today we're talking about an extremely important adjacent segment to games, games journalism and media, what its purpose is, how it's meant to be done, who's doing it, and where are the lines between unbiased reporting, opinion-based hunches, and maybe what also responsibility journalists have towards our industry, the gamers, the developers, and the business folks alike. We'll talk about processes and structures across mobile, PC, and console, where information comes from, and a lot more. In order to have this discussion, I have on air two different gaming journalists, both approaching different platforms and types of content in the industry, mobile versus AAA, and in different economic structures of journalism. For example, for writing for a historical journalistic entity and running your own entrepreneurial blog turned website. So the first is Neil Long, the founder of MobileGamer.biz, a mobile-dedicated only newsletter and site that covers news and insights for the global gaming market. Prior to founding MobileGamer.biz, Neil has spent 20 years in gaming journalism, beginning his career at Nintendo Magazine and as the App Store games editor at Apple, aka the person who decided to some capacity whether your mobile game was at the top of the charts in the iOS App Store ranking. I am sure that for some, you've played a tremendous role in the success of their game, either through MobileGamer.biz or at any point throughout your career. Welcome to the pod, Neil. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. And next, I've got one of those guests that you probably know. You either love to hate or hate to love, as I like to say, Uh, whether you've read his infamous Kotaku articles, his recent reporting at Bloomberg News, his litany of Twitter posts, or one of his two novels, Blood, Sweat, and Pixels, or Press Reset. If you work in AAA, you've definitely read something by Jason Schreier, whether or not you are aware of it. He's leaked a lot of content, famously getting himself into a bit of a kerfuffle with Bethesda on the timing and studio development of Prey 2. And I have to admit, sometimes in the office at Blizzard during my era, there was some anger when Blizzard content was released and leaked online. However, he's written on behalf of the developer, written stories exposing the gaming crunch culture across Rockstar, EA, and a litany of others exposing harassment, and more recently advocating that work from home can be an environment where great games are built. And though, as with anything, this also sparked debate. Welcome to the pod, Jason. Hello, thank you for having me, Alex. That was quite the intro. 
<laughs> I just had to, you know, had to round it out. <laughs> Before we get started, I think it's also important for us to recognize that regardless of style, it's undeniable that in games, journalism plays a really important role in the orchestration of our industry. And today we'll be talking about how journalism impacts the success of games and studios and what are some of the problems that are facing the written medium today. So I'm super excited to have you both on. You both built your careers in very different ways, and I'd love for you to start sharing your journeys. Tell me a bit maybe about your career and why you chose journalism as your career, and also something really hard about your job that we wouldn't think of. Maybe, Neil, you can, you can start us off. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I started out, yeah, almost 20 years ago on an industry magazine called MCV. Back then, it was a weekly magazine, weekly print magazine. For the UK games industry, I was editor there for four years, three or four years, and then I moved into consumer journalism. So I ran the official Nintendo magazine from London for future publishing. Then I did a couple of different things, launched a interactive iPad magazine called iGamer, which no one really downloaded, but it was, seemed like a good idea at the time. Then I moved into, I ran the uh, website of Edge magazine, which is a very long running print publication here in the UK. And then I, yeah, I got a job at Apple as the App Store Games Editor, where, yeah, as you said earlier, I was responsible for some of the featuring decisions across Europe and international. Held the reins. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there was some, I was also involved in sort of debating the Apple Game of the Year and some of the Apple Design Award awards, working with the guys in Cupertino. And then, yes, I, they, I left in left Apple in 2021 to set up mobilegamer.biz, mobile games industry website. And that's been running since March 2022, so 18 months oldish. And I think the, the final bit of your question was, what's the hardest thing about the job right now? The hardest thing, well, I'm, I'm an, uh, an indie publisher, effectively. The hardest thing right now, I know what I'm doing in terms of journalism. I've, I've done journalism for a long time. It's monetization that is the biggest challenge and sort of the newest challenge for me. I've not run a business before. I've not sold ads before. So I'm doing kind of everything myself. And that's a, a new challenge, but one that I'm, I'm relishing, actually, and really enjoying. So. And yeah, that's actually great context because we'll be talking exactly about that and the differences between running a journalism business or uh, a career, depending on where you sit in, in the journalism journalism stack. Jason, how about you? Uh, you tell us a little bit about yourself and your career as well. Sure. And also the hardest thing about your job. Yeah, sure thing. I'll give you the abridged version of my career, which is that I knew I wanted to be a writer of some sort. My whole life, I knew I wanted to be a writer. Wound up in doing a bunch of freelance journalism and then just kind of fell into video games almost by accident, thinking I would do it for like a couple of months for fun and then wound up landing a career. Started off at Wired, was at Kotaku for a very long time, part of Cocker Media, rest in peace, and now have been at Bloomberg for the last three and a half years or so, where uh, I do a lot of industry reporting on the video game business and space and culture. And yeah, I mean, I'm very fortunate. I, I've been very sheltered in that I haven't had to think much about monetization over the years, and I could just focus on reporting and writing. So I, the challenges that I've faced are a little bit different. There are a bunch of them, but one that immediately comes to mind is gamers. I think gamers are the hardest hardest part of the job, just dealing with them, because they can be so awful in so many ways. <laughs> Whether you're you're reporting something they don't like or critiquing something in a way that they don't like. 
And sometimes their kind of ire is is fueled by other sources, including people who work in the games industry. And it can be a lot to deal with. You have to worry about when you kind of, as you develop a public profile in this space, you really have to worry about your own security and making sure that <clears throat> certain certain types of people don't I don't know find out where you live. So that I think <laughs> is something that like people people look at journalism and especially at the jobs of like reviewing games and writing about games as kind of this this dream job and in many ways it's a fantastic thing to do but you do have to deal with this presence of video game Hardcore video game fans, capital G gamers who can really be malicious in in ways that I don't know how many people realize. Yeah. I mean, we can, I think, I don't know, Neil, if you've had any experiences, but obviously from the Blizzard seat, you also, you love, we love our community and we, wow, the community is the worst sometimes. You just can't win no matter what you do. And so I've definitely empathized with that. You can't say something that doesn't make somebody upset. And you're right to some extent, especially when you are running a, you know, you're, you have a public profile, you're a public company with an address listed online, people can find you and then you have to deal with that. But thank you guys for both sharing your, your intros. And, you know, it's obviously very clear and hopefully clear to our audience that you guys grew up in journalism in a very different way. Jason, you've worked for two or three relatively large journalistic conglomerates and cover PC and AAA. And Neil, you founded your own startup and you mostly cover and write about what you, what you wish. So I'd love to talk about some of the differences between being under these two structures. Um, maybe Jason, we'll start with you. Can you share a process for what you choose to cover? And are there any difficulties now, especially that you're in Bloomberg, covering games at a non-gaming dedicated journalism like pipeline? Well, the, my job has changed drastically from Kotaku to Bloomberg. I was at Kotaku for about eight years, a little bit over eight years. And that was its own kind of interesting challenge. We were publishing every half hour during work hours. So we just had to be constantly coming up with new story ideas and working on things. And, mm. and it was a lot of fun. And you could be a lot, you could be very creative with what you did. Some of my most memorable, I, I think people know me most for some of the investigations that I've worked on, but some of my most memorable posts are just complete nonsense, like funny little ridiculous things that I wrote. Like one time I, I did a post that was ranking review scores. And I think number one was seven out of 10. And then number two was maybe three out of 10. And I just put them in order in, in an unexplained unexplained list. That's what you used to call them. So that I, was I one set of challenges. One. Oh, good. Okay. That's, that was one of my favorites. And then when I came to Bloomberg, obviously you can't do the same sort of like silly blog stuff at Bloomberg that you can at Kotaku. And it's very different. It's a very different kind of set of challenges. And one of the reasons that I came here is because I wanted to try that, what, what you just said, writing for a non-gaming audience. I actually, when I decided to leave Kotaku for reasons that I made pretty public, I was debating whether to go to, I, I got two offers. One was at another gaming site and then the other was at Bloomberg. And I wound up going with Bloomberg, not because I didn't think the other game site would be fun. I, I thought it sounded awesome and I wanted, and there were great people there and stuff. But the Bloomberg opportunity was like, hey, you get to do something totally different, flex muscles in a very different, flex new muscles, just like uh, approach this in a very different way, which I found very rewarding. At Bloomberg, 
I'm part of this massive newsroom of 2000 plus people who are just like the most talented, experienced journalists. And I'm always like awed at, at the, the amount of talent that's surrounding me. And I get to write about our silly little gaming industry in a way that is hopefully approachable to people who just read Bloomberg, who are mm. whether they're finance people or just uh, business minded folks out there who just enjoy reading Bloomberg News and all the great journalism that my colleagues produce. And so that has also been really interesting. You kind of, you have to look at the gaming industry in a very different way. And whereas at Kotaku or at any gaming site, you might see people within your spheres talking about something and assume, okay, this is a story. This is all I'm seeing on my Twitter feed is like people talking about this one controversy du jour or whatever it is. That's a story for us. Whereas at Bloomberg, it's a little bit more of like when I'm talking to my editors, they have no idea what's going on in the gaming social media world. So I have to like explain something. And sometimes when you explain a piece of drama that is happening on Twitter to a normal person, they're like, what the (laughs) heck are you talking about? So Mm. that is actually really interesting. And I think really good because it kind of has forced me over the last few years to kind of sort through, sort sort the wheat from the chaff to like kind of distill what a story is and why it matters and what it really means and only focus on stuff that really matters, which has been a, a really interesting and cool thing to do. Not that that stuff doesn't matter, by the way. It's just a very different audience. And when you're talking to a gaming-centric audience, you can focus a lot more on granular stuff in a way that you can't when you're mm. at Bloomberg. Yeah, I think that's really, I think that's really poignant. And also, I think people have spoken to the quality of Kotaku's publishing and journalism. And I think that obviously is, you know, not at the same level as something like Bloomberg or Forbes or The Times, etc. And so it's different because you're obviously covering games. Now you used to be a big fish in a big pond and now you're maybe a lower priority topic, maybe at, at Bloomberg, but it also probably levels up the the journalism, the, the quality of the journalism or maybe the content, like you were saying, because you're forced underneath Bloomberg to basically say like, hey, is this a story or hey, is this not a story? Yeah, um, I don't know if I would agree with the quality. I think the quality of the stuff that we were putting at Kotaku, I was very proud of of, of a lot of what we were putting under Kotaku. The, the quantity was a little bit different. We were a small staff mm-hmm. writing a lot of stuff a day, every day, and that alone just makes it so not everything is going to be A plus work. But I was incredibly proud of the work we were doing at Kotaku and I thought we had a fantastic team and and I worked along some amazing writers and editors and I definitely would not say that it's some big quality hit or some big quality leap going from Kotaku to Bloomberg. It's just different. It's a different audience. It's a yeah. different kind of set of expectations and it's a different level of formality when you're writing for Bloomberg yeah, or selection. The Times. Mm-hmm. Well, it's more, I mean, Kotaku was designed as a blog and a blog is voicey and has first person and personality and snark and maybe some criticism and and writing about people in a way that you wouldn't necessarily see in a more traditional newspaper. And I, I don't think that one is better than the other. I think they're just different and, and serve different needs that are both really important. And, and I'll give you a good example of this. I mean, I think that the Times style, the Bloomberg style can be super, super 
valuable if you're using it for really good, strong reporting that kind of stands on its own. And I remember a few years ago, I was working on a an investigative piece at Kotaku with a writer. I was the editor on the piece. And we were talking a lot about like how much voice to put in. And I was making the case that like if you actually take a lot of voice out of this, it makes for a stronger case because it allows the reporting to stand on its own without you as a writer, without the reader feeling like you as a writer are putting your thumb on the scale and telling the reader how to think. So sometimes that approach has a lot of merit. But on the flip side, there was a lot of voicey stuff at Kotaku that we were able to do and inform people and entertain people in a way that you wouldn't necessarily be able to do at a formal outlet. So there are pros and cons. Each, each I wouldn't say there's a quality difference. I would say there's a, a kind of a, a style difference. Interesting. And Neil, you know, you are not at the, you're definitely, you're kind of, I think, as I understand it, a one-man show. So you have oh, yeah. no team. The yeah, team you are a one-man show. You have no team. <laughs> the team is you. And so, and you're also covering a space where there's a paucity of reporting. I heard you say on another podcast the other day that the, you said that they're basically the PR muscle the marketing muscle of mobile is very developed in terms of UA, right? But the PR muscle is not as flex as it is at AAA. Is it your ambition that the mobile industry get there? And then also for yourself, similar to the question that we asked Jason, like how do you choose to decide what to cover and how to cover it in terms of maybe a voiceier style or to be more matter of fact, how do you think mm. about this, what, what to cover? I think, yes, the mobile side of the business, even though it's, you know, 50% of the games market, in terms of media sort of share and media voice, it's almost non-existent. You know, if you look on IGN uh, in, uh, on the consumer side, you know, <clears throat> PC console games have this kind of inherent sort of passionate fan base that follows every single thing that PC and console game makers do. Mobile is such a different market. You know, these players are hyper casual players who don't, you know, they don't, they're not scouring Reddit for the latest about Candy Crush or Royal Match. They just want to kind of chill out and, and play a game on the bus or, or on the sofa in the evening. And, and maybe as a result, people who want to write about games for a living um, don't really choose to write about mobile. It doesn't inspire the same passions. And that's kind of fair enough. It's a different market. But yeah, when I was working at Apple all that time, I felt like there was, yeah, like a, a huge gap where authoritative mobile games industry reporting should be. And, uh, you know, there are several sort of trade facing sites out there already, of course, um, but none of them I felt were doing like the job I wanted them to do, which is to kind of wrap up exactly what's happening in the market, tell the story of what people are really talking about in the, in the, in the industry. So yeah, that's why I kind of set up the site. In terms of voice, it's an industry site. So, you know, I know who my audience is. So I have to, I, I play it sort of fairly straight. I'm talking to a business audience. So it's not, it's, mm. it's not exactly full of jokes and gags, but it is my, you know, it's, it's my baby. So I can kind of do what I like with it. I, I, I add in some voice where I feel it's necessary. And when it, when it reflects the feelings of what I see to, what, when I when it reflects the feelings of the market. So, you know, earlier this year I ran a series of reports about developers' problems with app review, Apple app review. And that that, you know, I, I I took a stance because that's what I was hearing that this is a problem over and over and over again. So, you know, as a as an outlet, I guess I took the stance that Apple is not doing enough to help game developers and game developers are angry. And, mm. you know, more recently with the Unity ups and downs and drama 
again, you know, the people I speak to are game developers, publishers. So I'm, I'm kind of not taking their side, but reflecting mm-hmm. their voice in, in a, in a media landscape when mobile game developers voice is often not heard at all. So yeah, that's, that's the goal with the site. And yeah, so, so far, so good, I think. <laughs> yeah. And a very exciting title, basically. Fuck you, Unity. We're not paying. Uh, so I mean, I, cl- I clicked on that too. <laughs> but you know, you talked a little bit about understanding your audience, right? You're like, oh, I'm writing towards a business audience, people who are in the mobile gaming market rather than the consumer side of mobile. As you said, like the rabid fan base of the hardcore capital G gamers is probably not as present. And so I think that's also a great segue to another question from me to you guys is, you know, I get my information from you guys. But where do you guys get your information from? And how do you make sure that the information that you're getting is verified and true and and balanced? My partner is super into sports and soccer. And there's apparently some NBA reporter named Shams something, something or other, who basically just makes like three to five million dollars a year for just tweeting first. He's built up like this elaborate network of NBA informants. And he like is literally on his phone for 18 hours a day. So how do you guys build up your network of confidants and how do you make sure that you're collecting both sides of the stories, right? Like the consumer perspective, the business person perspective, the publisher perspective. Jason, maybe we'll start with you. Yeah, friggin' Shams. The thing about Shams, <laughs> I could go on and on about NBA journalism, but what I don't like about that whole style is that all they're doing is, is tweeting things that everyone would find out anyway five minutes later. And that, I think, is the lowest but form first. of reporting. <laughs> right, but first, which is a, a merit in reporting, for sure. Getting scoops is important. But you're not offering a lot of value to the world if you're just echoing what agents are texting you, right? Like, I think that it's... Uh, and in fact, I mean, someone like Woj, who is Sham's main rival, used to used to do a lot of different kind of reporting. Anyway, I won't, I won't get into NBA journalism here because <laughs> I could ramble on and on about that. But, but I actually, I think that... Um, the value of a reporter is not necessarily to be able to tell people things that are going to happen a few minutes later anyway, or a few days later anyway, but to shed light on things that they wouldn't find out about otherwise. That has always been the kind of the, the North Star for me is, are people going to know about this without me? And if not, then it's it's the most important thing. That's not to say I'm not going to break news that people will find out anyway, because I do all the time. It's just that that's less of a priority to me. Anyway, to answer your question, I mean, I've been doing this for many years, have been have been have met a lot of people over the years, some of whom have been generous with their time and 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 fortunate I've been fortunate to maintain relationships and and conversations with people. There are a lot of people who I'm just in constant communication with. I think that the question of where information comes from is an interesting one because there are a lot of different sources. A lot of it comes from companies themselves sending out press releases or doing official interviews that are backed by their PR people. Sometimes you might get anonymous tips. I mean, yesterday is a good example of of kind of how all this works because there was a big news coming out of Bungie, the maker of Destiny. They laid off a bunch of people and a lot of that kind of real-time information was coming from a bunch of different sources. I wound up getting a couple of tips from people who were affected or who knew that were going to be affected who reached out to me and I spoke to them in various encrypted ways. 
I also saw some people tweeting that they were affected by it on Twitter saying, hey, I was I was laid off today at Bungie, which makes it clear that something is going on. In a case like that, when I start getting tips, I would work to corroborate them. Part of how to ensure accuracy is to never run a story unless you have multiple people all telling you the same thing. I also always reach out to the company for comment. We wound up getting, I don't think we got a statement. I think they put a statement on Twitter from Pete Parsons, the CEO of Bungie. So that became part of the story as well. We found out that they had delayed some of their projects, which uh, I heard from one person and then was able to corroborate with a second person. And so it's kind of this like layered thing where when you're working on a story, you're trying to, you're getting information from a variety of sources and you just have to make sure it's all true. The main thing that I do is like whenever I'm going to publish anything, I'm always going to ensure that I have two, at least two people, ideally more, but at least two people telling me that that thing is accurate, especially if I'm agreeing to keep people anonymous, because when you're keeping people anonymous, you have to ensure that you can trust that they're not going to burn you. You have to ensure that they got things straight. There are a lot of times when the game of telephone can, can skew information. You also have to make sure something that I believe pretty strongly in is not letting, not, not quoting anonymous people or letting anonymous people use anonymity for kind of subjective, to say subjective things, to be opinionated. Because I think if you're going to grant someone anonymity, it really needs to be in order to express facts, in order to get information out there that is that is certain. I would not give an anonymous quote. I would not grant someone anonymity to say something like, Oh man, like this, this exactly this, this guy, our boss is a real piece of piece of garbage. Like we hate him here. Like that does not strike me as something that is fair. Yeah. I mean, that's the shirt of it. Obviously this is, this is a huge subject that has been a large part of my life for a very long time. So there's a lot of kind of nuances and details to get into, but the short of it is information comes from a lot of places. You as a reporter have to verify and corroborate as much as possible and make sure that you're being as fair as possible, which means reaching out to all the people involved for comment, making sure they have a chance to give their own perspectives on whatever's happening. Yeah. And we'll definitely come back to some of the, you started touching actually on some of the next questions, which just be kind of like standards and guardrails for yourself while conducting investigations. But Neil, I want to pass it to you because you obviously have, you know, you spent a long time in the gaming uh, industry as well. So do you have a different process or similar process? How do you set yourself up at mobilegamer.biz for Mm. reporting? (laughs) Similar, similar deal, really. I wouldn't, when I'm doing sort of anonymized quotes and and information sourcing yeah it's really important to double check triple check with multiple people involved or with the same kind of information just to check your work and make sure that what you're putting out there is correct because you know the moment uh you put something out that isn't correct your especially as a one-man band your your reputation is is done so i'm very very careful to to corroborate sources and, and so on and then, yeah, I guess in terms of process, it's actually never been easier to speak to people. You know, LinkedIn, but when I started out in sort of industry journalism in sort of the mid 2000s, um, LinkedIn wasn't a thing, Slack wasn't a thing, Discord wasn't a thing, Twitter didn't exist, um, Facebook barely existed. So, you know, there are tons of ways to actually speak to game developers now and game publishers and game people at game platforms and engines and so on. It's just sort of managing all of that information and knowing where to look is part of the 
sort of skill. And uh, yeah, I think you, you build that muscle up over time, you know, you know where to look and you know who to ask over time. And when someone is, you know, I'm sure Jason is the same, but there are, there are a ton of half written stories in my sort of drafts folder that didn't quite have enough information to, or didn't have quite enough credible information to, to publish, which would have been sensational and would have made an impact. But, you know, you, you don't want to gamble away your credibility or your trustworthiness to get a sort of cheap headline. So yeah, you, you need to be 100% sure that what you're putting out there is, is well-sourced and well-researched and, and is accurate. So you talked a little bit about, you know, your hold back stories because it's not fulfilled, doesn't meet your standards of, of credibility and you've set those guardrails for yourself. I would love to rewind the clock a little bit because you're talking right now about your current career as a journalist at mobilegamer.biz, but you used to be the App Store editor. You played a big role in choosing which games deserve Discover or not. And actually, back in the day, that used to be a huge priority for mobile games. I would love to hear a little bit about some of the conflicts you faced in this job, if any, either between yourself and Apple or even between yourself and the relationships that you built with a game studio specifically. You know, I'm wondering, (laughs) has anybody lobbied you? Or, you know, because this is kind of like, I think, where a lot of this stuff comes. You have relationships in journalism and then you get favorable reviews. (laughs) So tell me a little bit about the guardrails and standards that you set for yourself back at Apple. Rewind the clock a couple of years. Yeah, well, I joined joined in 2014. So the App Store was quite a different place. And it was once a week. It would change once a week. And we would choose the editor's choice game. And and like you say, that, that game would basically be a hit where you would make a different hit every week because of that because of how important that editor's choice placement was over time that did change a little bit as the store changed we started updating the store more often and then when the today the redesign came and the today tab happened you know the that previously sort of quite focused editorial curation became sort of scattered into a million pieces so that you know, there are a whole bunch of games being surfaced to all different people. And the, and the tab is, the app store is actually personalized as well to your taste. So that kind of discovery and curation is became much less important over time. Yeah, I think today, I mean, on the outside, I haven't worked there for a couple of years, but uh, the app store seems to be kind of a bit of a jumble bit of a mess. I don't really know what I'm looking for. Well, some There's- folks got fired because they were like taking... <laughs> I don't know, like influence from yes. developers so or something that, like so that. that, I, I, that yeah. Do not quote me on that. That is not, that's the opposite no, I saw of that the report, factual yeah. verification that you guys are talking about. I just no, that, like, that was, glanced yeah, at that. Yeah, I saw that report. It was on, <laughs> it was on the, inf- the information, which is a very, very credible uh, outlet, actually. Yeah, I, I saw that. Apple has very, very strict rules about that stuff. And clearly they, mm. they stepped over the line. But yeah, when I was there, contact with developers was very well, actually fairly minimal. In mm. in some cases, I wasn't allowed to say I was in the editorial team when I was in meetings with them in case they sort of influenced my thinking somehow. But over time, mm. that kind of loosened up and you became more of a partner with developers and, and publishers as the app store changed and became more, actually more, more central to Apple's services division. So yeah, that did change quite a lot. There were, yeah, I, they have a very strict gifting policy. So even when people came in with like, you know, a, a hoodie or something, you couldn't accept it 
otherwise you get fired. You know, yeah, there were there were definitely uh, very clear guardrails there, and uh, yeah, I, I <laughs> the, you, you saw what happened to the China team for uh, stepping those those guidelines. Mm. But did you ever feel yourself conflicted by what you had to do? Right, it sounds like you weren't allowed to accept bribes, right? That's just a no, of call spade yeah, a spade. Yeah. But you know, no, obviously no one tried, you are you hold the fate. Of, <laughs> I mean, no you hold the fate of some of these games in your hands and so how do you decide you know which game d- deserves the top spot to begin with it was just p- personal taste you're there as a just like the music editors and mm. the tv and film editors it was you're there as a tastemaker that over like i say over time that changed in terms of you know there was a bit more analysis on like who is clicking where what gets downloaded you know, and it became slightly more numbers driven. But to begin with, yeah, it was mm-hmm. just pure, pure your personal taste. Like there was a, uh, when Candy Crush Soda Saga came out, I, I, I didn't really feature it that prominently, even though it was a, obviously a very significant game. I think I put some, some indie game ahead of it in, in terms of the App Store curation process that week. So yeah, it was purely, purely taste to begin with. And then the sort of, influence of numbers and engagement came in over time. Yeah, sounds like it's much it's a little bit more data informed and obviously sitting at where you sat you have accessibility to those retention numbers, the monetization, the RPPUs and stuff like that and even mm. maybe even ROAS and whatnot. So yeah, that's no, really interesting. Not, not quite to that level. Of, not quite to that level of uh, analysis, but yeah, they, the editors are they're definitely aware of what what is popular and what is not. Mm. I see. Got it. And Jason, I guess I would love to flip to you to talk about some of the standards and bylaws that you set for yourself. I think it might be a, this might be accurate in your opinion or not. A lot of, I would say the perception on your stance of reporting is, you know, relatively anti-corporate or definitely rather anti-big, big developers at times. And we have talked about this slightly before, but I would love for you to share a bit more about what your rationale for taking and motivating you to lobby on behalf of the developer is. Sort of like, I think also, you know, you said that you're inspired to be a writer. Sort of what motivates you to write from this specific lens? And is this something that you had initially when you moved into games at Wired? Or is this something that you've developed over time moving throughout your career? Yeah, I don't know. I don't really see my role as to be lobbying on behalf of anybody or an advocate on developers' behalf or or anyone's behalf, really. I think my role as a reporter is to tell true stories and cover the video game industry in all of its... cover, cover its warts and ugliness and all. And those warts and ugliness happen to be a lot of mistreatment of game developers over the years. And things have gotten better, that's for sure. But traditionally, this has been a, a, an industry that really grinds people into dust. I mean, my my last book, Press Reset, was a lot of was was mostly about the volatility in the video game industry and how it just drives people out. Like the average career in the games industry is something like five years. It's pretty, pretty pathetic. And I think that when you wind up, when you're a journalist and you see your role as to tell true stories, you <laughs> almost by definition have to be like 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 not advocating but certainly telling stories that don't make corporations look that good because what they're doing isn't very good um 
So yeah, I mean, if you're getting at the truth and you're approaching that in as fair a way as possible, that's just kind of inevitable, right? Like it's, you can't just be like, oh yes, these workers are all have stable careers and are very happy working nine to five and they love their their lives. Like that's just not reality. And, and truth happens to have <laughs> an anti-corporate bias because that's just the nature of, of reality. <laughs> to answer your question, I mean, what, what drives me, what's always driven me is just a desire desire to tell stories. I just love telling stories. And that is something that I'll probably always, always want to do with my career in some form or other. And I think true stories, nonfiction stories are really, really interesting. And so that's what I have wound up spending my career focusing on. And I think that what I think makes me a little bit different from a lot of people working in this field is that I would be perfectly happy doing the same job covering just about any beat in 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 journalism as long as it's like writing and telling stories and I can find interesting stories in it. It's not games that drives me, even though I think games are really cool and I play games constantly and I love reporting in this industry mm. and writing about this industry. It, that's not at all what motivates me to do this. What motivates me to do this is this kind of... I don't know, burning desire that I've always had since I was like five years old, like writing and in, in writing stories in in like those black and white school notebooks has just been a desire to to tell stories. So that's ultimately what drives me. And I think those two answers are kind of in, uh, those one in the same in that I think if you are a reporter who's motivated to tell stories and wants to tell true stories, they're going to wind up reflecting reality. And reality, I think it's fair to say in the video game industry is that for decades, traditionally in this industry, a lot of people have been mistreated by executives above them. I, I don't really think that's a, an unfair statement or an untrue statement. And I think that that reporting reflects reality. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't necessarily disagree, but it was more like I was wondering if there was like an impetus for why you were writing specifically with that stance. And actually, I kind of want to push back a little bit and maybe ask a bit of a harder question from the society of the developer narrative. You know, Neil just talked about how he held a position where, you know, very much the reins determining really the success of some of these mobile games back in the early 2000 teens, where being in the editor's choice was a big deal. And you've talked about how, you know, over the course of history, a lot of times the the bad guy at times can be the anti, can be the corporation who's grinding developers too hard. From the developer side, you've often released information early on games that might, you know, might not have been ready. And from the developers, I think their perspective is that their art and their work was judged before they were truly prepared. And so I'm wondering how you think about that as news and doing that service to developers because think you've definitely written a ton about exposing mismanagement, harassment, sexual harassment, all sorts of other good things, but also in terms of like leaking content, right? I know again from the Blizzard side, you know, it was it seemingly to us wasn't fair because we weren't prepared to share that story. And you're talking about writing that story, but that story wasn't ready for, uh, for from us. So Neil, maybe also you can and in, in, involve this discussion. I would love to talk about like, here the role of how journalism impacts game launches and the celebration and the quality and the reviews of those games. Well, okay, so first of all, what you're specifically referring to, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, is a story that I ran in Kotaku, I believe in the summer of 2019, that it was about, it was, the story was about the cancellation of Ares, and it mentioned that one of the reasons Ares was canceled at Blizzard, this was a Blizzard project that was in development, that one of the reasons it was canceled was so people could be moved to Diablo 4 and Overwatch 2, which were being prepared to announce at BlizzCon later that year. That story didn't leak content, and there's a big difference between showing 
to your point, art before it's ready and talking about the existence of a video game. But to zoom out a second to speak more broadly, my position on game leaks and reporting and stuff is generally that uh, I think that there needs to be some sort of public value attached to something. And sometimes that public value is certain is, is, is as simple as people want to know what's going on in the video game industry. And it's my job as a reporter to talk about what's going on in the video game industry. I think that it serves a public, it does a public service to give them information, even if the developers aren't pleased with that information getting out. That fundamentally is kind of the baseline for how I do reporting and how I think most journalists in, in any field do their work is, is, is this a public service? That said, I mean, there are plenty of times when I hear about some project in the works or some piece of info or someone sends me a trailer or whatever it is, and I'm not necessarily going to report on that because I don't really see it as doing much of a public good. There isn't a ton of value in it for some reason or another. Usually, if I'm going to talk about something that isn't announced and I'm going to be the first person to reveal the existence of a game or whatever it is, usually it's part of some bigger story. In the case you're referring to, we're talking about a cancellation, which is very much newsworthy, especially a cancellation like Aries, which actually led to, was the first domino in a lot of dominoes that led to some people, some key people at Blizzard leaving and, and a lot of other issues down the road. But I think that to talk about that story, you kind of have to mention, oh, well, they were all told these other projects are higher priority and we're moving to that. And that, I think, is an important, you can't just, as a reporter, I'm not just going to hide the names of games and be like, they're going to other projects, hint, hint, wink, wink, because that would be failing to do my job as a reporter. So sometimes you have to make that judgment call. Ultimately, it's it's you kind of decide these things on a case-by-case basis. But Again, there's a big difference between saying, hey, these games are in the works. They're going to be announced later this year. Look out for them. And here's what's here are all the granular details about what's coming in Overwatch 2. Or like, here is some art that someone sent me from Overwatch 2. Those are very different levels of, of leaks, so to speak. And I think that there could potentially be value in, in any of them if there's a good reason behind it. I, again, case-by-case basis. But that is not what happened here in the case you're talking about and i that wasn't that actually wasn't one of the specific stories but it is it was that oh, so what are you happen. talking about so be specific and and i can address it no it was more just in general the the stances okay. of, of, of not so well, well there's never been a case uh, the reason i ask is because there's never been a case when uh, as far as i can remember where i've posted art or or content about mm. a blizzard game yeah. in advance except for that one yeah yeah, and I understand that that there's a, that's a, an important distinction to draw between it's more like strategic planning and corporate restructuring versus the actual content of the games th- themselves. It's also the names of the games. I mean, at that point, I think most people knew that there was a new Diablo coming and a new Overwatch coming. I don't think it was much of a big secret talking about the names of the games and them being announced at BlizzCon mm-hmm. is not exactly a humongous leak as much as people over there might have felt like it was at the time. We felt like it was a leak. That's okay. That's just us being there. Fenris is a very important name to me. We felt like it was a leak, but I think that that is, from looking from the objective point of view, you're probably right. There's a lot of, obviously, when you work at a game studio on content and games you deeply care about, there's a lot of emotions there. 
And it's obviously sometimes hard to decouple that. Yeah, I, I mean, sometimes you have feel. to talk about this stuff in bigger context. I mean, Fenris, you mentioned Fenris, there was a whole huge Diablo scandal the previous year that led to me doing some reporting on like what the past and present of Diablo looked like. And there's important context. Like that isn't coming out of nowhere. It's coming surrounding this huge controversy of BlizzCon involving the future of Diablo. So a lot of this stuff is, uh, when taken in context, it's got a lot more news value than just being like, hey, look, Blizzard is, is doing this 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 random little thing like that or or sharing like unfinished work which i think is a is a very different kind of mm-hmm. level than saying yeah. hey this game is in the works yeah i want to pivot in our last 15 minutes here to talk about gaming journalism and some of the struggling economics that they might face and neil you mentioned going going 180 back to the beginning of the episode, you said one of your biggest challenges right now is building a business around mobilegamer.biz, which is your newsletter and website. And so just some facts here. Over the number of years, there's been a decline in the number of outlets that have covered games, mostly because it's hard to be profitable. Uh, a few months ago, I did an episode on gaming and business podcasting groups, such as ourselves at Novic and Deconstructor Fun and others, and mentioned that Vice shut down their games division. There were layoffs at IGN and Kotaku. There was cancellation of channels like G4TV, Dean Takahashi, shout out, another fantastic journalist that I'm proud to have had at school a couple times, wrote about layoffs they conducted at GamesBeat and VentureBeat. He pointed out that this was on top of cutbacks since December of 2022, mostly because the industry is hit by a hard slowdown in advertising. So there's a couple things going on. The written publications have had a hard time finding ways to monetize in the digital era. Maybe the Times is seemingly done okay with this. And the other hypothesis I have that's specific more to games is that obviously the need for reporting and written journalism, given every streamer and YouTube content creator and games is fulfilling that niche for players and consumers has gone down. So if I need to get a review of a game, I don't need to go to, U- I go to YouTube, not IGN. You guys have both been in journalism for a super long time. And so maybe, Neil, I'd love to start with you. Like, how do you plan to survive? And sort of how do you plan to build a business around <laughs> mobile uh, news? Yeah, I, I think there's the, the easy way is to do a load of sponsored content and mm. like trash the credibility of the site overnight. That's not what I'm doing. I editorial and commercial um, matters are completely separate on my site. You cannot buy it. You cannot buy a story, even though I get emails every week saying how much for a story, which is extraordinary to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I sell sponsorships. You could sponsor the site. You can sponsor certain pillars of the site. So jobs, data, new releases, the sort of more fact-based editorial uh, pillars of the site, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. You could sponsor those columns. That does not change the editorial content of them. It just gets your brand in front of the people reading those columns. You can sponsor the newsletter, etc. The way I'm running the business is, you know, keeping it lean. I do consultancy and freelance on the side as well as running the site. So all all of that together it, it, is that is what you might call survival. It's early days as well. You know, the site is 18 months old. <clears throat> I think there's a long way to go for sort of Google to really notice my website. I'm I'm there, but I'm not on sort of Google News. So what's that? What's that sort of traffic? Uh, tap gets turned on that will increase sort of discoverability for my site but yeah i'm kind of doing it the hard way a, a lot of um, industry sites uh do sponsored posts and and that kind of stuff i i don't i don't do that but yeah uh, i think everyone's different and that's kind of the reason why i, I wanted to start my own site and my own company is because I, I felt like there was another way of doing it and that i wanted to do it do it my way so yeah that is that is how i'm kind of 
monetizing the site right now is, is sponsorship. Hmm. Have you ever felt compelled to write about a story for the sake of driving traffic? Well, I mean, you obviously want people to read your work. That's that's sort of part of the part of the job. But yeah, I, I cover stuff all the time that maybe is less sort of sexy or cl- or clicky. You know, the I ran a story a couple of months ago about the forthcoming law changes, the Digital Markets Act, which means app stores will be able to sideload and Apple and Google will be, be sort of forced to open up their stores um, a little bit more, which hopefully should benefit the market. That is not a ratings winner. People, as uh, important as it is, people kind of don't really want to read about it, but I felt it was important, so I wrote about it. Um, and that's, again, that's kind of why I wanted to run my own site. I I alone choose what goes on the site, and if I think it's important, it goes on there. I mean, I, 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 have, I have zero SEO skills so you won't be saying seeing any seo bait on my site either so yeah that's that that's really uh, there there are no commercial pressures on me to do anything and that's kind of that's Mm. kind of how i like it interesting and jason to your experiences at kotaka and bloomberg which still remain and report on games maybe can you talk about the ways that those teams did monetize content and if so how effective it was and maybe i think also in your opinion you've been in this business for a long time do you think that there's something special about the gaming journalistic orgs that remain, you know, today, the ones that, you know, are still alive and kicking things like GamesBeat and PocketGamer.biz and Kotaku, et cetera? How have they managed to stay in place versus others like Vice that shut down their games division? Okay, so to answer your first question, I don't really have an answer for you. I've been lucky enough for the years I've been doing this work to be sheltered from the business side, which is the kind of ideal, the the idyllic journalism situation <laughs> is for there to be a very strict firewall between the business end and the editorial end. And so that was the case at Kotaku, that is the case at Bloomberg. Also, Bloomberg is kind of its own unique entity because our business right. is, is mostly selling terminals, selling software for for folks in Wall Street. So very different world than the ad-based business model, although we do also have ads and and think about traffic for sure. But like I am it's very rare that it even comes up in conversation on my day-to-day life. To answer your second question and to speak a little bit more broadly about the state of journalism, I think that uh, it's become obvious that the ad model does not work. There isn't enough money. Google and Facebook have stripped all the ad money and ads are kind of a flawed model in the first place. If you try to read most websites on your phone these days, it's just a disastrous experience because they're just these banner ads and pop-up ads everywhere and it's just a kind of a disaster of a world. I think that kind of fundamentally what a journalism site needs to offer to be appealing to people is stuff that people can't get anywhere else. And that needs to be what drives the business. And if you are consistent enough that you're offering stuff that people can't get anywhere else, then you could potentially find a way to get those people to pay you for that stuff. That fundamentally is really the only business model that is going to work long time, long term because the ad-based model is just not cutting it with the rare exceptions of institutions that are so huge that they're just like ingrained and people will pay their, them to do stuff like IGN. But even even those businesses are like taking SpawnCon and, and 
selling selling their souls, so to speak, by by really kind of cracking that wall between editorial and advertisement and and making it so like sometimes you can't even tell as a reader if you're if you're watching something that is sponsored, other than if you if you happen to see the tiny like hashtag ad in the corner or something like that. So that that's a little tricky and that gets into really tough financials. But fundamentally I think if you as a journalist or as a, a an outlet are offering news or insight or whatever else it is that people can't get anywhere else, then you might have a viable business and you might be able to charge people for that. And sometimes that's like personality driven stuff. Sometimes it's stuff that is that like is just a useful service, like maybe the best aggregator of some specific niche of news or something like that. Sometimes it's just exclusive reporting and scoops or whatever it is. I think that fundamentally is is really going to to be the future of business models and and you look at something like Substack which has been able to support a lot of journalists in recent years because people are willing to pay for like to support someone that they like and to get their content and to get their their unique stuff that can't be found anywhere else i think that is really what the future looks like some of the other business models by the way i mean i you mentioned games beat I'm pretty sure that their business model revolves around events. So again, we're yeah. talking about something that mm-hmm. is like an entirely different world from like, you know, they're not writing stuff and, and getting enough, like the, the, the written content on their mm-hmm. site is not a viable business. It's just, they have other supplement that can supplementary stuff that can, that can support the business. I'm talking specifically about, I am going to write things or make videos or make podcasts and make that a viable business, which is just a different, a different world that is going to require just totally rethinking of of everything because it's just not like if I were to start a gaming site tomorrow and it just had the same like news headlines as every other gaming site it's just not right. going to be a viable business because even if I get in some traffic through Google or Reddit or whatever it's not going to going to be enough and the ad rates are not going to be high enough. So yeah, you really need to rethink this stuff moving forward. And I think my advice to any pro, like aspiring journalists these days, other than don't do it, like go get an MBA or something like that. My advice, is, <laughs> my advice is to find what you can do that nobody else can do or that few other people can do. And then make that like your selling point, because if you're going to succeed in this business, you really need to be able to offer something unique and bring something mm. unique to the table. Yeah, that's. I think. Th- thank you for sharing. That. I think it makes a lot of a lot of sense. And I think that's exactly the problem. It's like the same news comes out on nine different sites, and it's like pick your poison. Which one do you? Where do you want to read it? And I guess like you know maybe there's been a very big shift in the way that we trust brands versus trust individual voices. It takes a long time to build brand trust, and it might be shorter time to trust if you're an individual actor posting on Substack, et cetera. So, and, and the brand cachet can decay very quickly after just a couple, like you said, a series of bad reporting. And actually, I think one of the cool things, Jason, to point out, you know, your shift from Kotaka to Bloomberg, I personally think that has also like helped like level up the credibility of games in the industry to have games be reported through a big financial institution in a way, is a passive signaling that, hey, this is a really big market and this is a big business. And honestly, I get frustrated with anybody who says otherwise because it engulfs TV and film, but that stuff gets covered by outlets way more often than games does. So I think that it, it you know, the business matters because now you are, you know, for the, the Times or for Bloomberg or for any of the big institutions, you're looking to expand in the news segments that they cover, you know, the Times, um, 
arguably expanding into sports with the acquisition of, I think, The Athletic and stuff like that. They're looking for ways to build out their business model pillars. And sometimes that is horizontal expansion, ugh, horizontal expansion of content. Yeah, um, it's so interesting. Games is so imp- impenetrable as an industry and as a culture that I think if you don't grow up playing games or if you didn't, if you don't play games, you just have no idea how to even enter this world. And I think you mentioned the Times or even Bloomberg or a lot of kind of the old institutional media. A lot of them these days are run by people in their 40s and their 50s, Gen Xers essentially, which is really the last generation to not grow up on games. Or maybe some of them did, but like not quite as games weren't quite as ubiquitous as people of the millennial generation and now even more so the Gen Z and and whatever the new one is, Gen Alpha, my kids' generation. And I think as more as that group ages out and you get more people into those kind of controlling masthead roles who grew up playing games and know games well, then I think you're gonna see a sea change there. But then the the kind of the conflicting point here is the Washington Post, which uh, had a game section that was pretty robust and then shuttered it entirely earlier this year. So that friggin' sucked and was just a real blow to mainstream media covering games yeah and so uh i think we're we're kind of every two steps forward you're taking taking a, another step backwards but but yes we're getting there we're getting there in the mainstream media world yeah well it's an ongoing question it's it's been cool to discuss the topic and thank you guys for for sharing your thoughts as a final final question i want both of you guys to just tell me what the, the title of one of your favorite articles or publications that you've written as our as our closing concluding question and neil maybe we can start with you yes well uh, idfa is broken or maybe it's uh, your recent uh, article uh, on unity uh, <laughs> yeah the a couple springs to mind i did a well I did a story about John Riccatiello calling a lot of his customers, I'm not going to swear, but it's an F word, idiots. That, that, <laughs> the tweet about that story got, I think I got about 4 million impressions over uh-huh. time. I also wrote for The Guardian not long ago about, about my time as an App Store editor. I can't remember the exact headline, but it was something like, I was an App Store editor. That's how I know Apple doesn't care about games. And that made quite an impact in, in, mm in mobile games industry circles. So yeah, I pleased with those and some of the reporting <clears throat> I've been doing about uh, app review and, and unity lately. Also, I, I mean, this is slightly self-indulgent, but back in 2013, I did a story about the power difference between PS4 and Xbox one, which using some anonymous development sources, which I think informed a lot of the discussion around the, those two consoles as Xbox slowly kind of messed up its position in the market back then. So yeah, that kind of a, a grab bag of highlights from me there. Nice. I love the, I love the app store one. I used to be an app store editor. That's a great title too. <laughs> awesome. Thanks. Jason. So my favorite headline that I've written, it came in June of 2015. I was just looking this up. So in June 23rd, 2015, it came out that the new Fire Emblem game from Nintendo would have same-sex marriages. It would allow you to like make Huge. your characters pair up and 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 
even no matter what their gender was. It was really cool. People were like, oh, oh my God, that's this is really big victory, especially a company like Nintendo. And then on June 26, 2015, three days later, the U.S. Supreme Court declared that gay marriage would be legal in the Ober, Obergefell versus Hodges case. I ran a Kotaku headline that said, U.S. copies Fire Emblem. And it was just a link <laughs> for the tweet. That was my favorite favorite headline. That I that's awesome. Wait, which Fire Emblem game is that? Because in Three Houses, you can't Fire you can't Emblem save Fates. Fates. Uh, so before mm. Three Houses, it, it regressed yeah, they regressed. They went backwards. Yeah, because like, I love Fire Emblem Three Houses. I've played that thing twice, both Yellow House and Blue House, Blue Lions twice. Have dumped an enormous amount, and I think it is definitely one of my biggest like gripes with the uh-huh. game. I'm like, how is this not allowed? And I didn't even realize that they went backwards. I thought that this was just Nintendo being Nintendo, but now I'm even more depressed because yeah. Yep. <laughs> Okay, awesome, guys. It has been so good chatting with you both. Um, Thank you guys for coming on air. Um, This is also reporting in a way, um, but in a more biographical sense, I guess. Um, If anyone in the audience is interested in uh, reaching out to you guys or being being an informant or whatever you guys want to call them or just uh, generally reaching out to you for, for news, how can they connect? For me, it's uh, on mobilegamer.biz. Uh, I am on uh, neil at mobilegamer.biz is my email. I'm on Twitter or slash X as neil underscore long underscore. Um, and, and LinkedIn is also a good way to reach me as well. I should be easily findable there. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty easy to find. Just Google my name and you'll <laughs> find me somewhere or another. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. You can Twitter or whatever. Okay. On that note, we'll be concluding. Big thank you, Jason and Neil, for coming on. Thank you to our listeners. And I'll be back in two weeks. Feel free to hit me up if there's any questions at alexandratnovic.co. I'd love to hear your thoughts, comments, or concerns. Thanks, guys, for coming on. Thanks for having me, Alex. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.